Audi. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. One of the aims with the podcast is to dig out diverse views of the world we live in. And on today's episode, we have Major Ken Haynes, MBE, who has incredible stories of being stuck in minefields when at war in the Falklands, parachuting into hostile terrains all over the world, guiding people with disabilities through the Nicaraguan wilderness for the BBC, and of his conservation work in Africa, which recently saw him attacked by a rhino in Namibia. With one eye always on the Official Secrets Act, it's Major Ken Haynes. Ken, I don't know much about the Special Forces, but I did do a little bit of a Google, and apparently you've got to do reconnaissance and surveillance in hostile environments, foreign internal defence, offensive action, support to counter-insurgency, counter-terrorism operations, sabotage and demolition, and hostage rescue. Does that sound a bit like your life? No, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) Well, some of that. I guess some of it and and all of it, but uh, yes, it sounds quite a quite a resume. I think you know there's a lot of misconceptions about people serving in special forces. Really, as Napoleon said, it's ninety percent boredom and ten percent action. But I think what really strikes people is not perhaps the exotic places people think you go to, swinging in through windows with you know boxes of chocolates. It's more the skill range that you have to acquire because that skill range is phenomenal. And it's not actually fiddling around with M-type gadgets issued to you in some dusty underground station. Because one of those fundamental things like trying to shoot straight, kind of over your shoulder while drinking a cup of coffee, it is tricky. And we spent hours and hours and hours trying to shoot straight. Hours and hours and hours trying to drive in a straight line. (laughs) Hours and hours trying to get inside buildings. I think the James Bond image or Jason Bourne, they take everything to an extreme. And really, in reality, you have to work exceptionally hard. It's like all this survival stuff, you know, the the Bear Grylls type programme. And, you know, you can last probably two weeks without food, probably only three days without water. And have you been in situations where you are several days without food? I have been in situations without food. And it's, it's hard going. It really is. You know, another name for man flu is probably feeling, I'm feeling hyperglycemic. And, uh, and you, you get that very quickly. Your blood sugar goes down because you're expending so much energy and not getting any, any food in. And you're probably tired as well. Fatigue has an awful lot to do with it. Sleep deprivation is a terrible thing. If I really wanted to torture somebody, I would keep them awake because it's just horrible. They do, don't they, in places like Guantanamo, I've heard? I guess so. I wouldn't like to make an official comment on that. But yes, yeah, yes, (laughs) we've gone on to torture already. That's Um, what I like to do with all my interviews. In the first two minutes, I like to get the torture in. Right. But that's, you know, learning skill skill ranges and, of course, skill fade is quite exacting. I mean, you're never at home. You're always away and very hard, hard to hold down a relationship. Relationship, you come back, nobody recognises you. It's a hard old life, despite the extra pay that you get, which you can never, you can never spend all your money. You come back and your bank's full. Is it well uh, paid? I wouldn't have expected that. But it's pretty well paid. I mean, people get a, a supplement on their pay for taking all those all those risks. So, what sort of risks are you taking? Physical risks all the time. I mean, jumping out of perfectly serviceable airplanes a lot, jumping into the sea, getting cold, going to the Arctic, mountain, desert and all those other places, and it's very exacting on the body. So tell me where you have been, as this is a a travel podcast. I know there's things you can't tell me, aren't there? There's lots I can't tell you, unfortunately. But I think I've been to just about every country in the world. 
Where's the most hostile environment you've been to? I would probably think Central America is probably the, one of the most hostile environments because there's a heck of a lot of drugs going through that area. There's a lot of tension there. El Blanco, as it's known over there, the white stuff, big money. They're quite amusingly, uh, I was on a guard ship for a while, trucking off the coast of Belize, and the locals used to ambush people coming through with cocaine. They didn't want the cocaine because it was of no use to them. They wanted the engine off the boat. So the whole coastline was littered with boats and piles of what looked like sugar. And they just wanted the engine, you know, so they could have better fishing. <laughs> I, I used to find that quite amusing. It had no value to them. I think anywhere that people are shooting at you is a dangerous country to be in. I mean, the usual culprits of Northern Ireland was a very dangerous place to be in. But I think because of the bombs. I used to find it very disconcerting sometimes, especially when you were in what appeared to be a pretty normal high street somewhere and a bomb went off. Ah, oh, crikey. And it's, it, it's a really heart-stopping, scary, scary time because you don't know if there's another bomb. In the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, in one year, 2,200 people died in Northern Ireland. It's a lot of people. So that was a scary environment, and you never really knew some of the time who was, who was friend and who was foe. The Falklands, I was trying to think how old I was the other day when I went to the Falklands, about 15, I think. I was really very young, I'm joking. I think my photo of 15, did you stow away and sign up? I was very, very young, and, and, I, and, and it was really incongruous because we, we got on board Canberra, and, which was a white... <laughs> white liner. Luckily it had been diverted from the West Indies and it was full of alcohol, which is bad news really. A bunch of, a bunch of marines going south, because I, I was with the Royal Marines then. We got to Ascension Island, which was basically a kind of palm tree paradise <laughs> on our way to war. Maggie Thatcher's away day and got down to uh, Falkland Islands where it was freezing cold. But I think I probably had some of my worst experiences there because we literally froze. Our boots were rubbish. We didn't have an Arctic kit. There we were in the South Atlantic without adequate gear. Why is that? Because you just didn't know or there wasn't I have money? absolutely no idea. I mean, I had an Arctic windproof, which I was really proud of. And I also had a barber jacket. It was one of those pullover barber jackets. It didn't, didn't have the zip or the buttons up the front, but that saved my life. But my feet did freeze after about a week, and I didn't feel them again until I got back home. And then had to be operated on because I had a bad cold weather injury. I've got a piece of shrapnel in me from an artillery shell. I got a bullet across the back of my back, which creased, missed my spine by a millimetre. One across the top of my head, which took my steel helmet off. Oh, I can see the scar. You so know, you must so be losing friends and colleagues. Yes, yeah. Yeah, quite a few people didn't come back from the Falkland Islands. Even We're not even repatriated to the Falk back to the UK. Which I, I was just thinking about the other day. I never really thought about it that much, but that's really quite odd. Usually we bring the coffins back with us. But some people were buried there. There was a memorial to them. I remember when Goose Green went on with a parachute regiment, took on the Argentinians at this a really brave action, and H. Jones died, and lots of paratroopers died, and, and, and I was down at the surgical support unit, and this guy called Rick Jolly was running that, who's recently died, sadly. A Royal Navy commander, surgeon, saved a lot of lives a lot of British lives and a lot of Argentinian lives as well. He was an inspiration, but I helped him from time to time, shifting people in and out of the surgical support team. It's in an old whaling station. And this one paratrooper was outside with a tourniquet on his leg because half his leg had been blown off. He was just lying there waiting to, to, go, to go in to be operated on. And I looked at him and, I, and, and he, he gestured to me and he said, have you got a, got a fag boss? So I gave him a cigarette and I lit it for him and he said, oh, thank you so much. 
And he said, well, I, said, I, think, I think my dancing career's over. <laughs> you know, that kind of black humour at a time like that just shows you what, what spirit some of these guys have in, in times of times of conflict and difficulty. Was that the first time you'd seen action then? Real action, yeah. With, you know, people shooting at you properly, bombing you. How do you feel when people are shooting at you? Scared. Scared. But there is a certain kind of, you know, you, you feel invincible in a way. You know, you've got that tin helmet on and all your gear. You do, you do feel a little bit invincible, and that's, of course, absolute, you're not. You're, that's absolutely rubbish. One of the scariest things that happened to us, we got caught in a minefield. Two people got their legs blown off. Oh, Dealing with that one was difficult. How did you get out of it? We had to get the Royal Engineers with us to go on their bellies, literally, like in the old movies, with a bayonet and a torch, and literally prod the ground to make a little path out of this minefield. It took them hours. It was freezing cold. That was a horrible incident. And my friend Paul had his foot blown off. Uh, he was the second lieutenant. And I asked him afterwards, I said, why were you, why were you biting your jacket so hard? Was it the pain? Silly question, really, actually, in retrospect. He said, no, I didn't want to scream and frighten the men. Brave, brave man. After that incident, we, you know, we're also by the Sir Galahad when that got blown up, and you know, a lot of people were killed. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of Welsh guardsmen were killed. And Simon Weston was on that on that ship, oh, and that that was harrowing, really harrowing. So I think, you know, despite trying to defeat the Argentinians, you were also dealing with all these other incidents around you, trying to look after people. My, my mother saying to me before I left, for God's sake, son. Whatever you do, look after them. And it was a really interesting comment she made, and I've carried that forward into my leadership talks and what have you, because I said, you know, the job of a leader is to look after the people who they're given the honour to lead. And how true is that? And suddenly I realised that that was my real job. I guess what she also meant was look after yourself. Yeah, I remember she said, I've planted a rose in the garden, and it'll grow while you're away, and hopefully in the springtime when you're back, it'll, it'll, it'll blossom. There's some very poignant mem memories from that time, some kind of things which emotionally are very embedded in my subconscious and you know, give me the odd bad dream from time to time. When I'm, when I'm anxious or stressed and works hard, yeah, I, I still, I still s say suffer. I've never called it PTSD. I've never called it post-traumatic stress. I, I just call it bad memories. <laughs> I don't want to have that badge particularly. Do you get offered help with it? Yes, I have had help with, with anxiety. Um, it was bizarre. When I came back from the Falklands, I collapsed one day running along the road. It must be because I was hyperventilating or something, and I got carted off, and then they thought, oh, something wrong with my heart. And then the PTSD wasn't invented then. It was kind of a case of, you know, pick up your muskets, Sam, and just crack on, you know. Shell shock, I guess it was called after the, the two world wars. Oh, yes, although I would, I would add that I think shell shock's a bit different because I think those guys were so bombarded that they probably were numbed by the, just the concussion that occurred, you know, from shells and things. You know, just the continual banging that probably knocked them into some kind of stupor. They often say that, that when people go into war, it's not necessarily the horrors of war that give them that battle stress. It could be something that happened before they went. In the military life, the institutionalisation just subdues that. Sergeant Major's your dad. You know, you've got a roof over your head, nice food, nice uniform, esprit de corps, comradeship. All those things that make, make for a very happy life. 
until you have to go and do the real business and then you know things get a bit gritty but you know war can be the catalyst to unlock things that have happened in the past maybe and also I imagine that it takes a certain type of person maybe to go into the army and the sort of person that goes into the army might sometimes be running away from something yes I think that traditionally Tommy Atkins as he used to be called British Tommies came from the working class officers came from the upper class and that's the way it was Officers had to buy a commission in the army. Sometimes people were needed for wars and were knocked over the head somewhere and ended up, you know, press ganged like in the Navy. How did you get into the army? I joined when I was 16. Because my dad, who was in the army, bought me a book. Of course, my dad was in the Second World War and he was was riddled with holes. He was like a a, a walking calendar. He had three bullet wounds in him. He's lucky to be alive. Dad gave me this book about Sandhurst that he'd found somewhere. I was fascinated by this. And this magazine or this this booklet looked incredibly glossy and amazing, and oh, I was just I used to read it in bed at night. But we we were a poor family. We didn't we didn't have any money. My dad was quite a heavy drinker, prolific gambler. So everything everything went on his sporting activities, and not a lot seemed to end up on the table. He had a cranky telly. The Christmas lights didn't work. I lived on coal coal fires, and I worked on a farm. You know, I used to milk cows and look after sheep and had sheepdogs on my grandfather's farm. It was a tough old childhood in some respects, but a magical one in others, uh, some would say, because we grew up in this idyllic countryside. Hence my love of the great outdoors. Where was this? Derbyshire. Although my, all my father's side came from Scotland. My father was, by design, a kind of Scottish Presbyterian, <laughs> you know, but he loved he loved alcohol. So all that side was, was Scottish, and my mother's side came from the borders. But agriculture, cows, wellingtons, duffel coats, harsh winters, no fairy lights on a tree. Well, that was my life. I got to my first barracks, which was in Bobbington in Dorset, because I couldn't get to Sandhurst. I was regarded as thick intellectually challenged so so well, I, they actually I, said that yeah they said that they yeah, said people that are very harsh sometimes aren't they you know nothing very encouraging that's why I'm always very careful what I say to young people because people say words can't kill but I think they can and a lot of people are labeled pigeonholed earlier on as oh, you'll never be able to do that or you can't do that or you've got this or you've got that but yeah I joined believing that I was thick and we never never achieve anything in my life but we'll give this a go and I found it so hard at first I was terribly because I was utterly naive I was mixing with these rough lads from Leeds and where I man's from Newcastle and and jocks some from tough estates yeah and they could just run rings around me anyway so I got through the first bit it was Royal Armoured Corps and I came out the other end of that they decided I should go to the RAC independent parachute squadron I was so excited I kind of rang my mother in one of those old telephone boxes where you press button A and button B to get through Oh, Mum, I'm going to jump out of a plane. What? She said, are you crazy? But that's how, how it all started. And so I had my parachute wings at the age of 17. I thought it was all part of a day's work. <laughs> just jump out the door. You just float down to earth. You have parachuted into some amazing countries. I've parachuted into some amazing, interesting, horrible, difficult places. I've parachuted onto the top of mountains. I've parachuted into jungle clearings. I've parachuted onto sand. Um, yeah, I think I parachuted everywhere. <laughs> there was one occasion, quite late in my in my my career, where I, I looked up and it wasn't there. <laughs> I thought, oh dear. But the parachute wasn't <laughs> didn't there. Didn't open. <gasps> so what happened? I had to open my reserve. And if you open your reserve parachute, you're allowed to keep the red handle. 
you know, so that sits proudly on my loom. People go, what's that thing? I go, that's, that's my, my reserved parachute. And where were you parachuting into? A holiday resort, <laughs> Cyprus. Are you serious? Practicing. Yeah, no, I was just practicing <laughs> something. So we were, we were jumping in Cyprus, of all places. It was a funny old day, actually, because on this airfield where we were staying, this um, American spy, everybody knows the plane takes off from there, the spy plane. This dude came up to me and said, don't take pictures of the spy plane. Well, you've already let it out the bag, haven't you? Oh, it's a spy plane. <laughs> it's a spy plane. Immediately attractive. If you said, don't take pictures of that silly old can taking off, you know, it's nothing nothing to get excited about. There's much more interesting things over there. So I said to my guy, I said, whatever you do, do not take pictures of the spy plane. I went off to get some instructions or something, came back half an hour later, I could hear this whizzing of an engine on the on the airstrip, and there's my, <laughs> there's all the guys with cameras out, you know, as if they're at Brighton Pier. Oh, and these two big trucks drove up and these hoods got out, you know, black uniforms, pointing guns. All got a bit messy. When you're parachuting into somewhere like somewhere hostile, I mean, obviously you're scared, but we're talking about travel here. Do you get time to appreciate the view? No, you don't, because normally it's at night. <laughs> but it, I mean, it can be fun. I mean, it's lovely when because when you're in the aeroplane, you've got so much kit that you can't stand up like your seat. So the loadmaster inside the aeroplane has to kind of pull you up and, and look at you and go, "Are you able to stand?" Because you've got a parachute on your back, you've got a pack, you've got other bits of paraphernalia very heavy so when you stood in the door and the plane banks you know the g-force kind of makes you feel even heavier you go and then and then you know the green light goes on you go god out the door and then you're weightless which is lovely you've done a lot for tv and you've done a huge amount of tv shows i was watching beyond boundaries which just looked incredible the program you did for the bbc yeah beyond boundaries was a was a fantastic thing to be involved with years ago about 2006 2007 i went climbing with this frenchman and he was blind they went oh no problem you know i'll stick him on the end of the rope rope and he can dangle around and you know curse in french and we'll get him up and then and then he said oh no can he's leading you oh i said that's different And then, of course, all your misconceptions and prejudices and negative biases all start bubbling up to the surface. So Jean-Paul and I went off and climbed this rock face. And that was an extraordinary experience. But on the way back, he said, in this wonderful French accent, which I'm going to imitate now, he said, Ken, how are you going to raise the awareness of disability? And I said, why me? I know nothing about disability. I know about war. I know about people getting injured, shot, bits of their anatomy blown off. But disability, in a broader sense, I don't know that much about. He said, this is your new mission. I went, "Okay." And from that day, Beyond Boundaries was born. Because suddenly I thought, yes, let's break down some boundaries. Let's get rid of some misconceptions. Let's get extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that's what we did. Three expeditions. Four, in fact, although one wasn't quite filmed, across Nicaragua. And why Nicaragua, people said? Why, why go there? I said, well, it was either there or centre parks. And my friend Danny said, Ken, no, 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 no. No, we're not going to London Zoo, centre parks, the, the, the Yorkshire Wolds. You know, we're going to take them as far away as we possibly can for as long as we possibly can to the hardest bit of ground we can get. Just quickly, for people who don't know what Beyond Boundaries is, the idea you took... 12 disabled people? Well, Beyond Boundaries was 12 people with disability on an expedition, and they were all volunteers, and they had a huge range of disabilities from cerebral palsy, amputees, some which were congenital, some which were from an accident, deafness, all those disabilities in this team of 12. And off we went to some pretty difficult locations, 
So Nicaragua was one, and then we crossed the Kalahari, and then we crossed the Andes. As you do. This is with difficult two <laughs> Yeah. For someone like you, an able-bodied man with a lot of experience. Completely. When people are saying to me, I'm having a hard time, I just show them some pictures of our courageous teams crossing some very difficult obstacles with a smile on their face. Between 36 and 40 days on the trod. Very hard. But they're incredibly stoic, great fun to be with. Yeah, we had tears and trials and tribulations, but you would on that kind of trip, on any expedition. But what it did do, it raised the awareness of disability. It, it gave a very solid platform for the Olympics of 2012. I think we achieved a lot. When we were away, we didn't talk about disability. It was irrelevant. What's the point of talking about disability? We are where we are. We've got what we've got. Just that's just some of the parts. And that's interesting. When I talk about teamwork, my travels across the world have taught me a lot about teams and working together towards a common goal. And those Beyond Boundaries trips, remarkable travel experiences with people who wanted to be there as well, taught me an awful lot. Without giving any specific operational detail though, which I know you can't, what was your most exciting or adventurous location? Either at work or the fun stuff, the TV stuff. That's a really difficult question. We went to look for Inca gold once, as you do, when you're feeling, you know, the bank account's a bit low. So we went off to look for this hoard, whatever you call it, crock of gold. Because when the Inca king, Altahapa, was killed by the conquistadors, his brother, Rumanawi, was on, on the way with the gold, the ransom money, because the conquistadors basically imprisoned Altahapa. And then Rumanawi got wind of that and turned off right into the, what's called the Yanganatis Mountains in Ecuador. And probably the most difficult piece of ground I've ever crossed in my life. I crossed it with the Ecuadorian Special Forces. Originally, I went to do some work with them and got interested in the area. And I remember crossing it with them, it was hard enough. But coming back on an expedition to find this gold with, with some, you know, some interested other people, desperate. Compass didn't work, GPS didn't work. Couldn't see where you were going. Constantly in cloud, quaking bogs, and these horrible plants called fletchers. So if you imagine a kind of straight stick, about a metre high, and the highest, that's the lowest, the highest were about eye level, really bad. And on the end of them were like these sharp leaves. And if you rubbed against them, they cut you. <laughs> and then you've got razor grass there as well, which cuts you. Yeah, that, that place had just everything going for it. That was wet, cold, scratchy, bitey. It's the Andes, it's part of the Andes. We're up at 12,000 feet. That is probably the most difficult piece of ground I've ever crossed. You've been, I'm guessing, to very cold areas, very hot areas. What's your favourite environment? I think really my favourite environment is Africa. I've done a lot of work in Kenya, Botswana, Tanzania, Namibia, South Africa. Namibia, Southwest Africa is probably my favourite because I just love the desert landscapes there. I mean, that's the oldest desert in the world, the Namib Desert, bordering on the Kalahari. Beautiful place, beautiful colours. Geologist's dream world because it has the oldest rock on earth, probably, and the newest rock on earth as well, rock volcanic stuff. And extraordinary desert animals that have adapted to that very harsh, dry environment. But it's great you sit around the campfire at night. I love the campfire environment, sitting around in, a, you know, in the warm at night, around a campfire. What could be better than that? I mean, a few lions growling around the place, and you know, a few elephants wandering by, and you just have to block those out of your mind and concentrate. <laughs> <laughs> watch your back but beautiful place I'm glad Namibia. you mentioned animals because the first time I met you a couple of months ago you were limping quite badly because you had just been charged by a rhino yes I think it should go in the, the, the book of stupid things that have happened to me or stupid things that I've done 
You know, it's hard when you're tracking an animal because animals are skittish. A rhino, for instance, does not like going upwind with the wind in his nose. He likes to, you know, catch. He, he, don't like, he doesn't like to be driven where he doesn't want to go. He likes to have an escape route. And uh, he's not going to eat you, but he is a pretty formidable tank on four legs. And I saw this black rhino trotting down a slope in front of us. And we must have spooked him out of his little lair wherever he was sitting. And I then went to kind of follow him and see where he was going. So I, I trucked off into the bush. I'm kind of looking in the distance, you know, shading, shading my eyes from the sun with my hand. And then I look, looked to me right, my right, and he was just there, literally five foot away looking at me. You know, just to say, well, when you finish looking at the horizon, I'm going to run you over. And he did. I kind of scuttled off, but he charged and caught, caught me up, obviously, pretty quickly. They kind of wave their head and kick their feet. It's a rather comic display they put on. Yeah, but so I got I got knocked, shall I say. I got knocked out of the way. It Were you hurt, badly actually. Not bad, I was bruised. You know, my pride more than anything else. And he ran straight through the group I was with, and they got a bit agitated. But I said, you know, it's, yeah, you, you, you go on an adventure, that's what you get. With me in particular, you know, <laughs> we're not in a tour bus <laughs> looking out the window with a long lens. We're on foot. You've been everywhere. Do you still have the enthusiasm to travel? Do you still want to travel more? I do, but I'm very... I love architecture, so... There are places in Europe that, I've, that I'd love to go back to that I didn't really get a chance to investigate. I think as long as, as, long as it's not too crowded, I don't like crowded places in particular, choke points. But interesting, I, I, I spent some time in, in Nice last year and it was quite fascinating. I'd never been around it before uh, and I had to be there for, for, for a reason which kept me there for quite a time and I started to look at old churches and cathedrals and... and investigate the history of why they were there it's like being in the basilica of venice you know it's, fa it's fascinating and i would like to do some more long ski routes if i can because being on skis is so it gives you a real sense of freedom you can travel much further on skis than you can on foot especially obviously in the snow as a motivational speaker yes what is it about travel do you think that inspires us and challenges us well i firmly believe that man is probably the most curious creature. I mean, it's the thing that's kept us alive and probably the survival of us as a species. It's curiosity and the need to look over the horizon. I, mean, I am the most curious person on Earth. And if I go to, up a path in the mountains, for instance, I've got to get to the top, to look over the top, to see what's on the other side. And it, and it is, you know, it is Star Trek, and it? it's the final frontier. And we're not going to reach that for a long time. This is on our, you know, little little rock going around the sun. We, we, we're going to have to escape this place sometime and, and have a look out there to see what's going on. And I am a rabid environmentalist, you know. We, we're slowly choking this, this planet to death. And there's a lot of great people out there trying to save habitat and animals and create sustainability and balance. And that's the one thing that frightens me about the whole beauty of this planet that we are absolutely adept at killing it and we've got friends across the Atlantic who don't believe in global warming so for all the kind of travel I love I hate going to sea hate's a strong word I become disappointed let's put it that way when I see bits of it that have been destroyed like rainforest is a good example of that where did you go for fun then mountains yes I've climbed all my life I was a mountain troop commander I was an Alpine troop commander, spent time in the German army in Lederhosen, which is a fantastic experience. But Lederhosen, your nice little Lederhosen outfit. is shorts, you know, like the Sound of Music kit. Have you got any pictures? Somewhere of me and the Von Trapps, but the Von Trapp family singers. Oh, you're climbing. being serious now. I'm serious, yeah, that's what we wore, Lederhosen, seriously. 
good. You did have one of those nice little hats. I well. did. I used to have a beautiful Alpini hat from Italy. Much more stylish. Nice peak on it with a big eagle's feather in it. Did you feel faintly ridiculous? Or? No, I felt incredibly functional out in the mountains. But that's why I go usually. I love the Dolomites in particular, particularly around Cortina, Corvara. And the Dolomites are possibly the most beautiful mountain in the world. Limestone, beautiful limestone towers. Yeah, it is a fairy story. Why do you think people go to such remote places like the poles and trips that adventurers like yourself take what is it about remote places that makes you want to go there and put yourself under so much strain and hardship i think people have sought extreme places i know since history was first recorded i mean there was always an exploratory urge to go and find out what was there Australia is a good example of that. They didn't discover about the interior of Australia until about 1870. And the government of Australia at the time thought it was a lake. And they sent these two chaps called Burke and Wills off who died. So, no, they did they both die, I can't remember. It's a famous story called The Dig Tree. Going to the poles, I mean, walking 2,000 miles across you know, the, po the polar regions. My friend Ben, he's been to the North Pole, I don't know how many times, keeps going back. Another friend of mine, Henry Worsley, sadly died at the, you know, you know, a few, a few miles away from completing a crossing of Antarctica. Oh, crikey, it's just sad. I, I find it incredibly sad that those people are gone. But there is an obsession with the wilderness with some people. A guy called John Krakow wrote this lovely book called Into the Wilderness. There's a story of a guy called McCandless who crossed a river in Alaska thinking that he could live on beans and tree roots and stuff, but sadly got stuck on the wrong side of the river and couldn't cross back again and died. Unfortunately, the planet is littered with people who tried to get to the top of peaks, tried to cross the polar wastes. I admire them in a sense because they're carrying the spirit of adventure with them and they're carrying that exploratory urge with them. But as some people wrote about, they could be described as conquistadors of the useless. <laughs> Why are you doing it? It has really no purpose. I would err the other way and say it actually does have a purpose. It keeps the spirit of travel and the spirit of exploration alive. I know that you recently co-wrote a book called Fallen Angel and it's doing very well by all accounts. How much of your experience was put into that book? A lot. I had to err on the side of caution with my co-author Keith because you can get carried away and then you read back and say, well, that's not realistic. So I tried to keep it exciting but realistic simultaneously, which was a challenge, without a doubt. I also tried to keep it as ethical as possible. E.g. there are a lot of good men and women out there working like they were in our book. A lot of people taking huge risks to keep us safe all over the place. And I admire those people because they, they sometimes live in a very clandestine, difficult world. Huge demands on them. And most people walking along Oxford Street today just wouldn't have a clue. But they're out there looking after us and some of those people I tried to depict in the book. Are they out there on our streets in the UK looking after Definitely. us? Definitely, yes. Yeah, all over the place. Doing a fantastic job and we owe them a huge debt because their dedication and their sense of duty and their, yeah, their, their, and their cleverness, their intelligence is, is second to none. Uh, yeah, long, long, long may they reign because we live in a dangerous world. In the book there was a scene in a lift in Colombia, I think, and Keith Turnbull, your co-author, has told me that that has a certain amount of truth to it. Yes, without giving too much away, which I can't, I have been in a lift, um, filthy dirty, and, and there were two ladies looking at us thinking, what on earth, where, where on earth did these two characters come from? Because the one I was with was six foot seven, you know, with hands like bunches of bananas, and um, I felt positively small next to Mike. 
But yes, there, there was a grain of truth in that little story because in the background was playing this uh, incidental horrible music you get in hotels and lifts and places. Describe to me why they were surprised to see you. What were you wearing? Well, we probably looked like we'd just been in the jungle, which we had. So we were kind of filthy dirty and grubby and horrible. Probably smelt, that was the other thing. But we had no choice but to be in that lift because we couldn't get in the back door. So... <laughs> <laughs> we, had to, we had to go and mix with the public. It's all very cloak and dagger. You have to be careful what you say, but what happens if you revealed something? Because you're no longer in the army, you're no longer in the special forces. Yeah, you are tied by the Official Secrets Act, and I think rightly so, because too much speculation about things is, is wrong. Although the news speculate the whole time. You know, special forces we see on the television revealing all the training stuff. Fundamentally, I don't agree with it, because we need to protect our assets our best assets, our secret assets, and not put them out there like Saturday Kitchen. It's just not right in my head. But you can get into serious trouble, of course. If you break the Official Secrets Act, you'd be going through Traitor's Gate at, up the Thames. <laughs> Don't <laughs> over, think they hunger and quarter people anymore. No, but they'll, they'll think of something evil to do to you. But no, you have to be very careful. Oh, tell me about your friendship with Princess Diana. Well, Princess Diana became our colonel-in-chief. and That's when my old unit, the Queen's Regiment, amalgamated with the Royal Hampshires. But she was a fantastic person and an absolute delight to, 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 to be with. And she was, as they called her, she was the people's princess. And when you sat down in her living room, she got you a cup of tea. You know, there was no waiter there. She went out and boiled the kettle and come back with a brew for you. And without over-egging it, I, I had some I had some wrong conversations with her about different sorts of things because I took some people from Centrepoint, which was her charity, which Prince William's subsequently taken over. I took some of them away on a trip. Again, it was about breaking boundaries and showing that people can transform if given the right support and challenge. And she was way behind this. I mean, gave it, you know, gave it her, gave it her shoulder behind me. I felt very sorry for her. There was from time to time she was, I suppose, overburdened with the problems. In, in her marriage and she yeah had a furrowed brow from time to time she had two young boys to look after and I did feel immensely sorry for her at that time difficult time for her and then subsequently to be hounded by the paparazzi and press and then all the stuff that happened subsequently was a, was an utter tragedy for everybody but I have met fond memories of sitting in her sitting room jabbering away about this that and the other she was a lot of fun and, and we had a lot of fun with her and uh, so sorry she's not with us anymore. What is next for you then? You're doing your conservation work in Africa. Conservation work in Africa goes on. Part of that's education for young people about conservation of the planet, which involves wild animals, trees, water, agriculture, family planning, all go into that. That's a big thing for me because it's all very well saving animals, but if they haven't got a field to eat in, you've had it anyway. So that's one big part of my life. I'm also doing a lot of work with disadvantaged and homeless ex-servicemen. There's too many of them on the streets, and there's too many of them who are coming out of the, uh, the army and having a lot of difficulty making that transformation back to civilian life. I've got a self-build programme where they build their own houses and live in them and hopefully get a job. So that's a big, big old mission. And still, you know, writing and... Yeah, I'd like to do some more TV stuff. I would, but for the right reasons. And um, think of some new adventures, new places to go and visit. Or somewhere I haven't been yet. Doesn't <laughs> sound like there's anywhere there you haven't been. Not many I haven't been to. Or I'm prepared to, you know, to get on an aeroplane for 
40 hours, whatever it would take to get there. So suddenly Spain, Costa Brava or whatever it is, seems a good idea. Do all these wonderful exotic and hard work travels, but actually there comes a time when just chilling out and going somewhere local to get a bit of sunshine becomes very appealing. I think you're absolutely right. And I think Europe is, is, is I've always said, it's been underestimated. It's like going to southeast Austria into the area that's not mountains and cowbells. I mean, it's hills, and there are some reasonably big hills there, but that's the wine country of Austria. Fabulous places down there. And if you like your vino, then that's a good place to visit. Montenegro's a fantastic place to visit. And all parts of all countries have wildernesses. I mean, if you think of the lakes in northern Italy, then Garda, which is the biggest one, you go west of Garda, it's wilderness for about 200 miles of just little villages and hills and quaint hillside forts and oh it's, it's amazing it's like the area north of venice i mean venice gondolas you know cornetto adverts is that what it was i can't, I can't remember what it, it was, was. It and, was uh, just one cornetto just one cornetto from a gondolier six miles north of there you're into a whole different ball game and the edge of the alps not not very far away so you've got to look underneath the surface of these places to to find the hidden gems. So my last question is about music, and I can't afford to answer this because we can't afford to play music. However, if there was a time on your travels, in your work, where you were listening to a song and you had a musical moment, what would that song be that we would play were we to afford it? I think it would be... It would probably be the Pearlfishes, because that was my mother's... One of my mother's favourite songs, apart from Claire de Lune. That's a bit depressing, Claire de Lune, for some reason, I think. But, but, uh, it makes me cry, actually, when I Oh, Claire de Lune, yeah. Oh, cry. But The Pearlfishes is quite, quite uplifting. But that was another of my mother's favourite tunes. And I think travelling through that area of North Italy, seeing people fishing by the lakes. And, and I mean, my, my, my mother had a beautiful voice. She was a beautiful singer. When I bring those things together, Italy in my head, because I always thought she looked like Sophie Loren, the Pearl Fishers, Bizet, isn't it? I hope I get that right. And all that together, yeah, that, that would do it for me. Thank you so much, Ken. I hope you'll agree that that was a fascinating insight into a world that I certainly didn't know too much about. Thanks too to Azimuth Post Production and Soho for the use of the studio. I'm loving the reviews on iTunes. Please keep them coming. And thanks so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.